Please turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. This is God's Word to us, Revelation 10, and we'll read the whole chapter. Revelation 10, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and with his face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told... You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is instruct us, teach us, fill us with great courage because of what you have revealed. But not only give us understanding, Lord, nurture us and grow us that we might trust you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In some ways, it feels like we've been away from Revelation longer than a week. I think that's more on my part than on anyone else's, just because of travel and so forth. It it feels that way. I was away at General Assembly uh, the week before, and thankful for Mark Futado coming to preach last Sunday. I don't take that for granted, by the way. I do know pastors who are expected to go and do the work of the General Assembly and still preach that Sunday. And so I am thankful for a church and its officers who support me by bringing in uh, a guest preacher on the Sunday after GA so that while I'm at General Assembly, I can focus on the work there and not have the work of sermon preparation. So I'm grateful for that. Where we are in Revelation, well, we had just finished the fifth and sixth trumpets in chapter 9, and we come now to what is, uh, in a sense, an intermission uh, here in chapter 10. We've seen a similar thing at the end of Revelation 7. At the end of the sixth seal, there was a similar intermission where there's a scene there that takes us away. And uh, John, what he's doing here with these intermissions are a sense of a, a literary device. That's what Robert Mounts calls it, literary devices by which the church is instructed concerning its role and destiny during the final period of world history. And so it's a pause 
in the midst of all these incredible descriptions of the trumpets to remind the churches of Asia Minor and us today of our role and destiny. I think I mentioned it in chapter 9. It may have been the previous chapter, but it's at about this time that if you've ever read through the book of Revelation that you just want to throw your hands up. and be Like, I don't get this. And, and, and you want to just go back to one of the Gospels or, or go back to Psalms or something where it just seems more clear. So I think, you know, imagine yourself, don't forget, this is an epistle. Imagine yourself being in one of those churches in Asia Minor and being read this letter and hearing all of these incredible descriptions. The intermission here is a gift. <laughs> it's a chance to pause, to ponder what's been said, but also, as Mounts points out, to consider our destiny and our hope. It's a, it's a moment to reflect on who we are. And the image that John has in the vision does just that. It gives us some insight into how we are to live as followers of Christ in our own day. We feel the growing threat in our own culture against Christianity. We know that it's there. But not only is there an increase in the oppression from outside We also know many sufferings in our personal life. We feel the struggles. We identify with a passage like 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 10, where Paul writes, We are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying in the body the death of Christ. Maybe for you it's a sense of shock that this, right here, right now, what you're living and experiencing, This is the Christian life? Maybe you were one who was told, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you interpreted that to mean that God was going to make all of your problems go away. And now this? Maybe you're one who's questioning the goodness of God. If God loves me, if God is good, how could this be happening in my life right now? Maybe you even wonder if life is worth carrying on because of the struggles and the sufferings and the afflictions of this life. How could it ever make sense? So let me reread that passage from 2 Corinthians 4 again because I left a few words out. Paul writes, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see, what Paul communicates here in 2 Corinthians, John is also communicating to us in chapter 10 of Revelation, the reason for our hope, that our sovereign Redeemer is ruling over all of the messes. Not just the stuff that we see on the news, but our messes. Our messes are not insignificant to Him. He rules over them. They are not happening apart from His sovereign plan. He is ruling over them and He is mighty to save. He will accomplish His purposes. He will bring judgment. He will bring to completion at the appointed time, He says, without delay the fulfillment of all of our hopes in Him. So let's look at verse 1 here. And the first thing we see is this angel, a mighty angel, introduced to us. 
It says, another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And so we see that John's perspective is no longer in heaven. He is in the perspective of earth. He sees this angel coming down. And the angel is described as another, which causes us to ask the question, where was the first mighty angel? Well, that was in Revelation 5, verse 2. That mighty angel is the one who asked the question when John saw the scroll that was sealed up, is there anyone worthy to unopen or to open the scroll. As we read further about this angel, we see this elaborate description. There's a lot of detail here. Does it sound like anyone? Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Is this part of the vision supposed to represent Jesus? Look, he is wrapped in a cloud. Isn't that how Daniel described the coming of the Son of Man? Isn't that how the disciples saw Jesus at the ascension in the clouds? The rainbow draws our attention to the covenant-keeping God who establishes the promise with Noah. The face like a sun takes us back to Revelation 1 and that description of Jesus there. Legs like pillar of fire reminds us of God leading His people through the wilderness. Pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud by day. And yet with all of these details, I'm going to argue that this isn't a picture of Jesus. Notice instead that John describes him as another mighty angel. There was no need to describe him as such. But also, if we look, because he calls him another, not simply a mighty angel, Jesus could appear as anything. He could appear as an angel. We see the angel of the Lord described in the Old Testament. That is quite possible. But he says another mighty angel. And this is designed to take us back and recognize the first mighty angel, which I mentioned is the one who asked the question, is there anyone worthy to open the scroll? And what do we see in that image? We see the, we hear the angel ask the question, but then we see the lamb take the scroll and open it. The lamb, Jesus. And so there's a distinction between that other mighty angel and Jesus. John doesn't worship this angel. We might expect that if it were Christ. In Revelation 18, we see a third mighty angel mentioned. But possibly most significant in terms of arguing against this being an image for Christ is in verse 6, we see the angel take an oath. And it's an oath that would seemingly be taken by a created being. He swears by the one who made all things. Now, certainly God could swear by himself uh, because he is God. But the language there is used of a created being rather than as the creator. So if this is not Christ, why all the Christ-like description? Well, there's something that's meant to... The the intermissions, as I mentioned in the very beginning, are designed to encourage the church. Take a breath, church. You know, you're getting all this intense stuff. I mean, can you imagine getting this letter? One of these churches in Asia Minor. This is an incredible letter. We're so accustomed to it maybe in the church that it doesn't shock us anymore, but there's a lot of shocking imagery and description in this book. And so here's a pause. Take your breath and consider for you what is important. I think that that really drives our direction and understanding this. And so the angel is coming as what angels do. They're messengers. But specifically, he's carrying the message of the Savior. He has been delegated with power to accomplish that purpose. One commentator writes, these symbols are meant to communicate God's sovereignty and his trustworthiness. Those are two themes that we've seen throughout our study in Revelation. That God rules over all, even though it may not look like it, remember that. And that he's trustworthy, that he's good, even when it doesn't look like that, remember He's trustworthy 
and He rules over all. In verse 2, we see the angel comes with a little scroll open in his hand. Now, this is different from the scroll that we saw in chapter 5. The first thing was that scroll was described as having writing on both sides of the parchment, which was unusual. It was meant to convey that it was large or full or contained a lot. This one is described differently. It's described as little. That scroll was closed. You remember it was sealed with seven seals. This one is presented open. We then see the angel position himself one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. There's very little disagreement as to what this means. This is communicating the power that the content of the message is designed to cover all creation. No one's going to be left out of this. So this is for the church universal, the church worldwide. But it's also a message, the gospel is a message of good news for those who believe, but it's also a message of judgment for those who reject the message of Christ. And so, again, worldwide, all of creation, this is meant to cover them. He announces in verse 3 with a loud voice, with a roar like a lion, and John hears seven thunders. Again, we think of Jesus, the Lion of Judah. This is his message that the, the angel is giving. And the seven thunders remind us, of course, of the seven trumpets, seals, and bowls. But as soon as he hears these seven thunders, he's told not to write these down. And if you're like me, or like most four-year-olds, if you put four things on the table and said, you can have this one, this one, this one, but not this one, which one are you most curious about? (laughs) What are the seven thunders, right? We want to know what this is. Now, we've seen with the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and we'll see with the bowls, that they are parallel descriptions of the progression of the end of time up until the return of Christ, where we see an increase in troubles or tribulation leading up to the final judgment. And so we would expect then that the seven thunders would be another parallel account, but we don't know. We don't know. They're not written down. We can't know. And because we're not told, we don't need to go there to try and figure out what this is. Instead, we need to understand that what God determines to keep a mystery is to remain a mystery until He chooses and if He chooses to reveal it. And that's okay. There are a lot of things that God has determined to keep as a mystery. That doesn't mean we're left in the dark. We have been given what we need to know. Peter captures this in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That knowledge is revealed in His Word. He's given us what we need to know. We might also think of Micah 6.8 where he says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Instead, we must remember that there is much we don't know, and we won't know unless He chooses to reveal it to us. We walk by faith, not by sight, and that's okay. It's actually, I think, it adds to the beauty that we don't know. I mean, we're not omniscient, we recognize that, but the fact that God hasn't expected us to know and understand everything, but to simply trust Him. So whatever the seven thunders were, the angel then takes a position of one making a vow or giving a testimony. It's almost a courtroom picture in verse 5 with his hand raised to heaven and swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, that there would be no more delay. That's his testimony. 
that there would be no more delay. Now, I mentioned before that this is clearly not a profession that Christ would have made, or he wouldn't have worded it this way had this been an image of Christ. I think this is clearly an angel. The promise that he is making, though, is that there is no delay. This isn't saying that there's no delay from the time of the revelation. John is receiving a vision. It's a vision of future things. Instead, what he's saying is that at the time of the seventh trumpet, there would be no delay. Now, the mystery that he's referring here to here is not the same as the seven thunders. The seven thunders were not written down. Okay, The mystery that he speaks of here, he tells us about a little bit more, and he says that the prophets have been told about this mystery. So don't, don't uh, conflate those two. The only thing that ties them together is their proximity here. So what John hears and sees in this interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet is that when the seventh trumpet is sounded, the end has come. And that's exactly what we would expect. It's what we saw with the seventh seal. It's what we'll see with the seventh bowl. That with each of these, the intensity grows up until the end of time and then when the seventh sounded is sounded, that is the time of completion. And, of course, that's what the number seven represents in Scripture, fulfillment or completion. But we do need to consider what this mystery is that he speaks to. He tells us a little bit about it. He says in verse 7 that this mystery was announced to his servants, the prophets. And that tells us a little bit about it. Well, first, let me read to you from Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 12. Listen to it closely. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, and those who are wise shall understand. Does that sound similar to what we're looking at today? There's incredible similarity between Daniel chapter 12 and Revelation 10 and what we're looking at today. He mentions this mystery announced to his servants, the prophets, of which Daniel was one, uh, And this seems to be pointing to something that resonates with us. It's the gospel. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Isn't that what Paul wrote of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1.23? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Or Romans chapter 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Colossians 1, 25. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think it's a compelling argument that this is the mystery that John writes of here. We see nearly two dozen times in the New Testament the idea of mystery being used to describe the gospel, the good news of Jesus, 
as revealed in God's Word. It was hidden. Daniel didn't understand it. He says he didn't understand it. The prophets didn't get it. They didn't get it when Jesus showed up. But now we understand and we have been, uh, it has been explained to us that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the hope, uh, is the message of our hope and our rescue that we have been united in him. And then we see John go on to ingest the scroll. He eats it and then is commissioned to proclaim it, which is fitting with the Great Commission, right? That we have first to accept the gospel, to receive the gospel, and then we're called to proclaim the gospel. So that's my argument to you that this mystery is indeed the gospel. Now look in verse 8. We see that a voice instructs John to take the scroll from the hand of the angel. Some see this scroll as the once sealed scroll with the seven seals on it, that that's the same. We uh, understood that to be God's plan of redemption. Others understand it to be the entire word of God, while some see it as only the book of Revelation, that it's this specific revelation that was on that scroll. Others see it as mysteries or revelations not to be revealed until the end of time. And we could go on. There are many, many understandings as to what this little uh, scroll represents. But I would argue it represents the gospel as revealed in the Word of God. And that's why John must ingest it and proclaim it. Now we see in verse 9, John is instructed to eat it, and he's told that it will taste sweet like honey. But after it, uh, when it gets to his stomach, it's going to turn it sour. He's going to become nauseated. It will become bitter. So how does that represent the gospel? Well, in terms of it tasting sweet like honey, we probably think of Psalm 19, where God's word is described as such. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. More to be desired are they than gold, even much than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." But the word of God, although sweet that, that, as it proclaims the gospel, also brings the promise of suffering. This is what we don't like to hear. Now, some have gone in the, in the direction of suffering for those who are under God's judgment. And that would certainly, you could, you could understand that direction in terms of judgment is certainly something that would upset our stomach. No one, uh, you know, loves to watch judgment, even though we may recognize that it's just and it's good. But I think this actually points to the suffering of believers, because that's a theme that we see throughout the book of Revelation. That's who John is writing to. He is writing to suffering or soon to be suffering Christians in Asia Minor and indeed to us in the church age throughout history. The promise that we will suffer, all who follow the suffering servant Jesus, is indisputable. We can't read the Bible and not understand that we are told we will suffer. Jesus told his disciples this in John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. We could go on. There are numerous statements in Scripture that point us to suffering. But our suffering is not without hope. Our suffering is not aimless. Our suffering is not without purpose 
or without promise. Listen to what Dennis Johnson writes. Neither tribulation, nor distress, nor persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor peril, nor sword can separate Christ's people from His love. But this blessed assurance is precisely for those who are prepared to be put to death all day long, like sheep to be slaughtered for Jesus' sake. Paradoxically, but truly, the witness church's defeat in suffering and death at the blood-stained hands of its enemies is its supreme victory. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, we're told in Revelation 2 and 12. Jesus' call to hopeful courage is blended with rugged realism. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. God's Word gives to us the delight that is found in the gospel, the hope of our salvation, and yet also tells us that with this comes great difficulty. Now, we would prefer to have a life of carefree living, free from suffering, with no persecution, with no difficulty. No one wants to suffer. But in this upside-down economy of Christ's kingdom, suffering plays a role that leads to His glory and to our good. And this is a mystery how this works. We can't understand it. We can't make sense of it in this life. But we are called to faith, to a persistent stepping forward in trust of the one who has saved us. He doesn't promise us an end to that discomfort in our stomachs, that pain, that nausea, that bitterness, at least not in this life but He promises us something better. In this life, He promises us Himself. He is with us in the pain. He is our balm. He is the cool cloth as we heave with nausea of living in a broken world. He is the soothing comfort in the middle of our bitter despair. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And in the life to come, He promises us Himself at which time He will wipe away every tear. No more aches, no more pain, no more nausea, no more grief, no more bitter stings or despair. We will be with Him face to face. The hope that we have now in the midst of our suffering is what serves as a message to many peoples and nations and languages and kings, just as John was given that instruction. Our hope, our perseverance, our thankfulness, all tell another story, a compelling story of our rescue, even though it looks like a paradox. It looks like foolishness to the world. They may look at our lack, our suffering, our hurt, our struggle, and think or say, what has God done for you that I should want Him? We aren't to respond with quips and cliches. Not when our Savior said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or later in Luke 14, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. No, instead, we do not despair. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things 
that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What John is called to prophesy to here in verse 11, we also have the privilege of speaking to. It is the mystery of grace, the paradox of redemption, where love triumphs over all the powers on display in this world. Everything we fear and everything we lust for, He will conquer. He will do this as our sovereign, loving Redeemer for His own glory. And yet as He does this, He is enfolding us into the plan as His bride. We have been made priests unto our God through His redemption. And our sacrifices of praise in the midst of suffering shine for His majesty. Greg Beale writes this, While the means of growth is the Word of God, the context of our growth is often suffering. Although we already are the temple of the living God, 2 Corinthians 6.16, the glory of this new temple grows as we persevere through suffering. As Christians trust God in the midst of trial and their own weaknesses, God shines His glory through us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Suffering is not an automatic lever to release the life of Christ in us, but suffering is the occasion that we look for Christ's life to flow in us. As we have been called to suffer, as we wait for His return, we have not been left alone to do so. He has given His Word to direct and encourage us. He has given us His Spirit to empower and enliven us. And He has even given us His grace in this table to nourish us. This table of Jesus is given that we are to remember His atoning work that He accomplished. We need to remember. We see that throughout Scripture, the call to remember. But we need to do more than remember. Just as John needed more than information, he needed to ingest the scroll. And much like his taking and eating and internalizing the word, and much like the psalmist description there, we too take and eat. But we're taking and eating symbols that point us to the bread of life. We drink from the true vine. This is communion not simply together as the body. It is communion with Christ. So as we eat and ingest this supper of the Lord, may we find mercy and grace to not lose heart and renewal day by day as we wait for our faith to become sight at His return. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we feel the weight of this world. We feel the weight of our own sin. And yet as we look to your word, we see that this is to be a light momentary affliction. We don't understand that, Lord. Because it doesn't feel light. It doesn't feel momentary. But we trust you. That that is all it will be when it is then compared to the eternal weight of glory. Lord, we long for that day. And as we long for it, will you help us, strengthen us, help us to trust you, help us to believe that you are not only sovereignly ruling over all the messes in our lives, but that you are able to save and that you're good, that you're trustworthy. 
Lord, as we long for and wait for that day when our faith is made sight, as we come now to this table, would you give us a taste of what is to come? May we taste and see that you are indeed good. Use this now in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.